0: Welcome to the latest edition of Who's Round, which starts in the introduction with a factual error. How exciting! I know how much Doctor Who fans like a factual error. Unfortunately for you letter writers, I do correct it in part two. Yep, because this is a two parter. Enjoy. I think, hello, listener, I think this is the first edition of Who's Round that has been recorded at my house. Um, I mean, Rula Lenska has stayed in these hallowed walls, but uh, I didn't know her when I did the Who's Round, um, so I did it uh, near her house. Um... So I think this is the first... There must be somebody else, maybe not. So this is a record. Right, so because as I'm drawing this uh, podcast to a close, it seems sensible to hoover up all of those people that have gone, oh, I can get them anytime, and still haven't got. (laughs) So the first of them is somebody uh, who actually hadn't been in Doctor Who when this project started, but now has been. So I'm going to ask her to tell me who she is and why I'm talking to her about Doctor Who.
1: Hello, I'm uh, Bethany Black. And you're talking to me about Doctor Who because we've been friends for nearly twenty years, oh. <laughs> and, and uh, yeah, and I was in Doctor Who. I played Four Seven Four in in episode nine of season nine of uh, of, of 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 New Who uh, with uh, Peter Capaldi and uh, and Jenna Coleman and and Reece Shearsmith and until recently it was the lowest rated imdb <laughs> <laughs> had the lowest imdb rating of any episode of doctor who, really? who. yeah yeah of yeah, any it, episode it, of new who yeah yeah until recently there's there's been a couple since then that have suddenly right um, but yeah it was yeah it's the lowest rated imdb why, why do you think that is and people it really split people cuz i think partly cuz it didn't have the doctor who theme tune at the beginning i think that a lot of people got so angry about that right cuz well you know what you know we've been doctor who fans for forever, yeah. and and you know exactly what we're like when when they went and decided to go and squash the the, the, the end credits up to yeah. one side of the screen to go and tell you what was on next. And, and well, then... yeah,
0: I'm, yeah. I mean, that's I still haven't. I'm still furious about that. Yeah, yeah
1: I am as well. It's
0: <laughs> and of course, for a program that flourishes on change, the minute you change something of it, we yeah, really yeah, don't like it.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly.
0: That's interesting. Um, because I right, so we we will go back and we will talk about non-who things. So specifically in terms of. Uh, the vacuum of the episode itself. Yeah. How did you come to be in Sleep No More?
1: Right, this is one of those stories which annoys everybody. This is because you know about my acting career. You've, you Toby's uh, dear listener, been uh, been the reason, been the reason why I've had such a fantastic acting career. Um, I ended up acting by accident. I, I, I wanted to act when I was when I was young, and when I was sixteen, I went to Blackburn College. And I did performing arts. And at the end of my first year, I realised that uh, once I'd spent a year with performing arts students, I didn't want to act anymore. <laughs> and so I gave up on it entirely. I went, oh, I'm not going to do that. I'll go and work behind the scenes. I'll write and I'll direct. And so I went off and studied film and television. That's what I did at university. And left university and, and then had to move back to Chorley uh, in Lancashire, which is, you know, not, not quite the, the Hollywood of the UK. Um, and just found myself sort of slowly f- drifting away from anything to do with that. But that was w- what I'd always wanted to do. So I ended up doing stand-up and it was through stand-up that we met. Because mm-hmm. um, Excess Malarkey, your club, was the, first, was the first proper comedy club that I performed at. Before that, I just... I'd emceed in between bands at music nights. Right. And, um, and yeah, and so I did stand-up and went, right, okay, well, this is what I do now. I'm not going to do anything else. I want to do this. And then for about 10 years, people would go and send me... Uh, occasionally, I'd get a thing through saying, you should audition for this. And and it's so much easier mentally to go, I could have achieved that, um, when you don't actually try. <laughs> yeah. When you don't go for it, when you just sit at home going, oh, I, could have, I could have done that, that would have been great. Um, then put yourself out there, because once you do and you don't get it, then you have to deal with being a failure. Um And, and so I never, I never really did until I was just, I broke my leg. I was in such a terrible state. I had I wasn't able to work for a long time. I was ended up very, very poor, very nearly bankrupt. And, um, and just out of the blue, um, a couple of my friends sent me Facebook messages saying you should audition for, for this role, um, which was in Banana for, for Russell T Davies. And, and and I had nothing left to lose at that point. So I just went, yeah, okay, I'll do that. And I got in touch with them. It was like a Monday afternoon, I got in touch with them. And they emailed me back almost immediately saying, yes, we know, normally we'd ask for photographs and stuff, but we know who you are. Um, here's the script. Can you come in and do an audition in Manchester on Thursday? And I said, yes, of course I can. And then immediately phoned you. And, <laughs> yes. And spent, and spent the whole of Tuesday at your house with with yourself and and your your good lady, going through the script, figuring out how to do it, going through the scenes... Well, Shirley,
0: I remember being very rigorous with you. Yeah.
1: We did it in so we did the scenes in just so many different ways, and we really sort of like nailed them in so many, and found where the humor was in each of the scenes, and just really did what you're supposed to do when you audition. And then after that, I went over to see another friend of mine, uh, Bron, who I've been friends with since we were primary school, who works in uh, works at university University of Salford, who's a, a, an improvisation teacher, and we went and sat through, and we did then did it in. We then did these very serious scenes in about half a dozen different comedy ways. We read them as comedies, which really just sort of helps you pick out... Drill it. ..every yeah. single joke, that every single potential joke that's in there. So it gives you just a range of different ways that you can do it. And so I went in to do the audition, first ever professional audition that I'd had on the Thursday, with and, and sat down. Uh, I was told it was Andy Pryor who was doing it, and I knew that name from the end of Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah. And was like, right, as if it, this wasn't as if this wasn't already nerve-wracking enough but I'm going to have to go in and sit with someone who I know exactly who this guy is I I've, I've seen his name pop up on so many things I'm, I'm uh, like, like yourself with with I was in the 90s I was such a, a film geek like unlike yourself with Doctor Who I would watch every program that I every film that I would watch I would recognize all the things and it was a massive time for British cinema so he'd been the casting director of uh, of Trainspotting amongst other things and I was like this is a guy who's got such a pedigree, and I've got to go on an audition for him. This is that was more terrifying than anything else, I think, because uh, I went and sat in the in in the room to, in the in the reception to go in. I was chatting with, uh, with well, I was just on my own, and I, like, I had to take some deep breaths and go. Do you know what? You've never acted before. You're not going to get this it doesn't matter if you're not going to get this this has never been part of your plan this has been a plan for about 3 days uh-huh. to act so it doesn't really matter and i went in met him and he was lovely and we did the scene a couple of ways and i went away going well i think that went quite well i don't know i don't know how it normally goes for anyone else i don't know how auditions normally go be fine and it was i think it was a bank holiday weekend but i got a phone call off andy to my direct number on saturday afternoon saying we want you to come back in for a call back on tuesday um here's my number if you need to talk to me about anything over the weekend just get in touch we'll be able to do this and i went in on the on the tuesday did the read through um and the next day andy phoned me and said right you've got the job these are the these are the terms these are all the things that you're going to be doing these are, this is this is how much money you'll be getting paid i was like just sort of sat there running up a calculator going god <laughs> well, this is amazing this is <laughs> Listen, well this is brilliant because it was an American co-production as well so there was quite a bit of money that was involved and uh, and, yeah, and I love money so it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, a, it's a fantastic thing to have and um, yeah and then he said and we're doing the read through um, on Friday so if you can come to that uh, we'll send a cab to pick you up we'll, we'll, and I was like I'd never had anything I didn't know what television t- things were like all I knew was what you see on American TV shows where they go and have actors and you see them in Winnebago's and, and lots and lots of food and, and, and that they have people to come and pick you up and do all of these things and I never expected it would actually be like that. <laughs> and it was. Um, and they took me off to go and t- to, do the, to do the read-through and I pulled up outside the offices of Red. Andy was stood outside having a cigarette. And I got out of the car and went, oh, there you are, Yeah, how you doing? I said, yeah. he said, listen, don't worry. Uh, We're just going to go through and do a read through. Just everyone's just going to sit around and you just read the lines. I know a lot of people get nervous about this, and that was the first time I realized you're supposed to be nervous. uh, uh, (laughs) (laughs) Something like that. Because I was like, why would I be nervous? I've just got to read something off a paper. I don't like this. Is I do stand up for a living. You know, this is I, I have to make up. Mass. I have to make up five minute chunks on the spot sometimes, just because of something that's happened in the room. So. So sitting there and reading my lines off a page in front of a group (laughs) group of people is like, this is the easiest day of work I've ever had. Um, And I said, oh, don't worry about it. I know what read-throughs are like. I've I've watched plenty of Doctor Who Confidential and his eyes just sort of lit up and went, oh, you're a Doctor Who fan? And I went, oh, yeah, I am. he went, oh, I cast that. And I had to pretend like I didn't know. And I went, oh, really? He said, yeah. He said, do you fancy being in it? And I went, well, yes, of course. And he went, oh, I'll keep you in mind then. (laughs) And I was like, well, first day of an actor, this is dead easy, isn't it? <laughs> we went, I went upstairs into the main room, and um, as we were walking through, Russell came bounding out of one of the offices, but there she is, come here, and gave me a big hug, and then went and led me off and sat me in a room with uh, Andrew Hayden-Smith and a couple of other people, and I was just looking around going, I know you all off the telly, What's, this, is, this is bizarre. And then we went and sat in the room and we did the read-through, and, and so cucumber and banana came and went and it was fine, and, and I just sort of carry on with doing stand-up. And I'd kind of forgotten about what Andy had said until suddenly I got a, a phone call uh, out of the blue going, I've just messaged your agents. Um, We've got a role that we think you'd be really good for. And they got in touch with me and said, do you fancy doing Doctor Who? <laughs> I said, like, well, of course I fancy doing Doctor Who. I said, right, OK, well, here's the script. You not. You can't tell anybody. You're not even allowed to tell anyone that you're auditioning for it. Um, It's for the role of 474. This is the character spec. Uh, we'd like you to go in and, and do the audition, so... Drove down to London and then had to run across town because I managed to park up miles away and and was late. And, and We're
0: going to get on to that. That doesn't surprise oh. me.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I sat in, I, I went and I got into the, it was a really warm day as well. It was like the beginning of May. And I went and sat in, it was, it was sat in Andy's, in, in the building where Andy's offices are next to these impossibly thin, impossibly good looking people, whilst I'm sat there very red faced and with sweat just pouring out of me, just going, Oh god, well, I've ruined this as well <laughs> <laughs> Went downstairs and like sat in with Nikki Haley, who's the who is the producer, and sat in with um with Andy and just again, did did the audition, did it and and went away from it and and went home and kind of forgot about it. I messaged him about a week later going, so I'm taking I didn't get it. He goes, oh, no, it's not that. It's just it takes a long time to, to decide. We've got loads of different variables, and often it will be, like, a couple of days before you're going to start shooting that we'll, that we'll know. And I was like, all right, okay, cool, that's fine. That's fine. He said, you know, it's just because it's such a big show, you know, biggest in the world at the time, and and so, it, you know, there's a lot of people who have to make decisions in order to be able to finally get to it. You know, I... Just so that you know I've suggested that we do go with you, but they don't always listen to me I went, right fine um, and then uh I got at the same time actually I was auditioning for um for East they took me in they did, they got in like lots of transgender people to do East Enders. they wanted to try and figure out this like we need to have a trans character because this is fashionable right Yes. Yeah. and and so they went and brought me in and a load of other people, and we had to do like all these different and there was this long audition process that took. Like two or three months and um, I'd gone and done that and I was like going, oh I've got Doctor Who so this is good and I, went, I might have EastEnders as well but I don't know if I want to do EastEnders because I don't know blah, blah 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 all this sort of stuff and um, I kind of forgot about it and was back to going life's oh, a bit of rubbish went off and had an afternoon nap and got woken from it by a phone call from my agent going got some good news and some bad news the bad news is EastEnders don't want you um, but the good news is that uh, Doctor Who does and I was just like Well then. (laughs) Well then, this has been this is my best day of my life. Good news and good news. Yeah, Yeah, this is both good news because what I've done is I've managed to have a really lovely nap and been woken from it with the best possible news on both fronts. The decision's been taken out of my hands. Um, So a couple of weeks after that, I had to, and again, wasn't allowed to let anybody know that I'd been accepted. Wasn't allowed to let anybody know that I'd auditioned. Wasn't allowed to let anybody know that I'd seen the script. Um, I then got this book through from. Uh, the BBC saying, you know, we'll, as we send the things through, we suggest that once you start shooting, the week before you start shooting on it, that you change your internet passwords and and email passwords because people have been trying to get hold of, trying to get hold of things. So change them every week until, Really? Yeah, yeah. Um, there's like, there's like a big, it must've been like... And is this just for guest actors on Doctor Who? Guest actors on Doctor Who. It looked like there was a 30 page booklet, which just, I I didn't read all of it. I have ADHD. So (laughs) I, (laughs) but I know that the gist of it was right, basically just, these are all the rules in terms of what you can and can't do on the internet In running up to it being announced that you're on. And I was like, right, okay, cool. So all of this stuff's going on. And I'm like, right, okay, I've got, got to go and do this. Then a few days before we start shooting, I go down to, um... Down Millennium Effects, where they went and did the full face mask thing, where they go and put... They do a, a mould of your face. Yeah. Uh, so that they could... Because they decided that for the face tattoo for 474, it would have been easier to go and do it as a silicon tattoo transfer. Right. Rather than just painting it on every Okay. Day and and keeping it on. Turns out they were wrong. It wasn't easy. <laughs> it was a lot more work. Um, but they went down and they did a full sort of face cast of me, and, and then... Two days, like the day I was like the day after, that, I had to go over to Cardiff to to go to the studio to be uh, fitted with Ray Holman and, and his team to be fitted for the for the costume and to get my pass for the studios. And as I arrived, I walked in and saw uh, my favorite comic book writer, um, favorite Spider-Man <laughs> writer Dan Slott, who is a massive Doctor Who fan, who was on a tour of the studios. And I was like, I'm sure that's him, but he was a little bit too far away for me to figure out whether or not it was actually him. And I'm like this is my first day, I'm doing Doctor Who, I've walked into the studios and there's my favourite comic book writer in the world and I can't tell anybody, I can't even send them a message on Twitter to go, was that you? <laughs> <laughs> because I can't even let anybody know that I'm there. Um, at that point I had to lie to, I'd lie to all of my friends, they knew I was doing something and I wasn't, wasn't allowed to tell them so I, uh, I did like Varys in, uh, in Game of Thrones of, of telling each of them a different lie. <laughs> just in case it got out, so that I, so that I knew who. So to who would who would betrayed you? Yeah, yeah, knew who to trust. So one of my friends thought I was off to Croatia to film Game of Thrones. One of my friends thought I was off to New York to do Jessica Jones. Someone else thought I was off to South Korea to do uh, the Avengers. Um, I just because I knew, cause it was that thing of they knew that I was doing something and they knew it was secretive and I I just sort of had to make out. Yeah. And so it, it, the the level of secrecy around it it was like it has to be one of the biggest things. That's going. So it was just having to tell people that, oh yeah, no, I'm not going to be available because I've, I've got to go out of the country. Which, that bit wasn't a lie. Yes. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: You know, I was in Wales. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I made sure I had all my jabs and took my passport with me, you know, just in case. Um, yeah, and then we shot the, the episode, which we did throughout uh, August. and it was always... how, long, how, many, how long did it take? It took just over three weeks. Right. Which, it's about twice as long as it is for a normal single episode of Doctor Who. Because it was entirely done as a found footage episode. So it was Mm. all done... um, It was all done, like, a point of view shot. Which makes it so much more difficult for a number of reasons. First of all, because your personal continuity has to be so much better... Of course. ...than anything else. Uh, And if you watch the episode, you know that there are a couple of those. Like, the first shot that we did was a point of view shot from my perspective with me holding a gun and realised later that the cameraman couldn't hold the gun that way and i was the only one that repeatedly have to had shots where i was holding the gun so i suddenly had to go from being right-handed to left-handed at the end of the first scene um (laughs) (laughs) that's one of the because that was one of because just because of the physicality of having to do it but the other thing was that every time we had to block out a scene we all had to choose where we were we all had to like figure out where we were going to be within the scene. Because normally when you're doing a scene, it's a case of the director goes, right, can okay, you them there and you stand there, and you try and figure out what looks good on camera. They try and figure out what looks good on camera, and your director of photography goes, actually, can you just move over here and do all of those things? And on this, as well as the director of photography being involved, we all had to be directors of photography as well, because we all had to, when we did the wide shot for the start, we all had to decide where was the best place for us to view that scene, depending on what we were going to have to do within that scene and what was going to happen as a result of that. So every single scene that we did, we had to really block it out carefully about where we were going to walk, where we were going to stand, because we had to be the camera. Mm. Um, So that just went and added... Like, it made every scene take twice as long to shoot. So it just made it so much more difficult to do. Um, But so if there was a shot in
0: the episode from your point of view... Yeah. Would... You wouldn't have, but a cameraman shot.
1: A cameraman shot that. would have to stand in from my point of view, yeah. Why couldn't they do it where they just
0: put a camera in your helmets and actually did it as actual fan footage?
1: Because of the way that they were doing the. Um, because of the lighting and everything that they do with, with the shots, with the, with, the, with the whole episode. The, the lenses hadn't been good enough to do um, shots with that sort of contrast and that sort of colour and that sort of light level right up until the year that we did it. Right. right until season nine so it was it was stuff like it was on a spaceship that was red and it was almost entirely dark and those are things which really really go and mess up low quality cameras so we
0: haven't invented small cameras that can shoot in that quality in yet in that quality yet no okay,
1: no, or at least haven't at the time I don't know if we have now but it was yeah so it was a case of that and trying to make sure that it was it was a good enough quality to then go and put on whatever filters or any of the other things that they had to do yeah um, and so yeah so it was sort of. So everything that we did ended up having to take twice as long, and everyone was getting frustrated. And everyone who worked on it, like when we were chatting, it was a, it was a really odd episode to film. I was chatting with Peter at one point about shooting it.
0: This is Peter Capaldi, Peter Capaldi. who played TV's Doctor Who.
1: Yes. As he said in the read through, really? as we go around the as we go the table, and we all say, you know, my my name Bethany Black, and I'm playing four seven four, and it's, I'm Peter Capaldi, and I'll be playing Doctor Who. Yes! <laughs> Which I loved. I was like, right, okay, there we go. That's, that's a, a line under it for any further arguments I ever had. But well, he
0: should have been Doctor Who on the credits. Mm. As, anyway, that, that's David Tennant's yes. fault, you know. Yeah, Because yeah. Eccleston is Doctor Who. Yeah. And when David Tennant came in, he said, oh, it should be the
1: Doctor. Mm. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, so we... Um, yeah, it was... So When we were shooting it and we were doing like that, I was chatting with Peter about it and he said that it was so much more difficult to shoot than any of the others. It took twice as long, but also... It was a really weird one, insofar as um, as a guest actor on Doctor Who, you tend to end up when, when you're a guest actor on anything. Like, you're working together for twelve-hour days for three weeks. You you get really close to the people that you're working with, especially when you're doing scenes where you're doing close-ups. But all of those close-ups were removed. So, because any close-up that you were doing, you were looking directly into a camera. Of course. So it was it was quite an isolating experience of all of of all of the things. It was my dream job, and I was so happy with it. Um, to be doing it, um but there was a number of things, partly first of all, because of the the face um, tattoo that I had i wasn 't allowed to go into the canteen with everyone else at lunchtime because that counts as a spoiler because people tried to take photos and we shared a canteen with uh casualty because it 's casualty shot in the studio next door, so the lunchtime canteen would be shared with casualty with lots of extras and they like taking photographs of people who were in doctor who and selling them to newspapers so, so
0: because you were an alien well a monster not yes. a mon- uh, but, but not yes. a hu- not a human
1: yes so i wasn't Yes. Yeah, so because i wasn't just a regular human in a <laughs> in army gear i had to go and sit in my sit in my trailer on my own during my lunch hour whilst everyone else went off and sat and... got that sort of tried. clone apartheid, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It, is. <laughs> it, was, really, it was really horrible because it was one day when there was a, a fire... Uh, was, well, One of the fire alarms had gone off at the studios. We'd been out shooting in a in a, in a factory that makes solar panels out in Newport, um, which was where most of the action took place for our episode. And then we went back and sat in... We, we got back to the studio and it was a boiling hot day, and middle of August, and um Yeah, there'd been a fire alarm at the studio, so the entire studio had to be taken out. And so everyone else just sort of got out of the car and had a little mill about. A couple of them went off to Nando's to go and get some food. And I wasn't even allowed to get out of a car. (laughs) I had to sit in the back of the car outside the studio because we weren't even allowed into the car park. Um, So it 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 was such a strange job because it was such a wonderful job and I wouldn't change any of it for the world. And it was absolutely wonderful. But at the same time, it was so emotionally taxing. Um, it's one of those jobs that I look back on with great fondness, but at the time it was so tough that I had, I really struggled with it. Oh really? Yeah. Um, also because, because of the, because of the facial prosthetic as well, it was the facial, almost all of it's down to that facial prosthetic that, um, it was too thin for the, uh, for the type of, uh, makeup remover that they use for most of the facial prosthetics. It was a very, very thin, lightweight one that allowed me to get full range of facial expressions, but sort of stayed in place all day. Um, but the makeup remover that they use for that, for those sorts of prosthetics, just normally takes takes care of the glue that's underneath it. Um, But with this, it's too thin, so it didn't actually do anything other than just take the colour out of it at the end of the day. So I ended up with... So it would take the colour out and then just leave me with really granular, white, sticky silicone all over my face. So in the end, we just ended up having to, like, just repeatedly wash my face with soap and water until it went away. <laughs> Right. so it took like an hour and a half maybe two hours to put on in the morning and then an hour and a half to take off at the end of the day just because I had to keep repeatedly washing it and stripping off layer after layer of skin so I ended up it was just after the first week I had cuts starting to open up under my eyes and um, and so I would get picked up at five in the morning to be taken to the studio then it was a couple of hours getting the, make, getting the, the face on and then we'd go in at eight do the rehearsals start shooting finish it Finish at nine uh start the rehearsal in the morning at eight. Start shooting at about nine, finish at six in the evening, then I'd have to go back out and then spend an hour and a half taking the makeup off again and then back over to the hotel where I'd get there for about eight. Uh well, about half yeah, it'd be about half seven when I'd get in, have some food, go to bed at half eight. And that was it for like for like three or four weeks. And so it was just it was just so physically demanding of of the sort of I mean it. I didn't I don't even know if it sounds like it's that physically demanding, but it was. It was just so isolating, so demanding, that it was, it was such a tough job to do in that respect. Um, but again, loved every second of, of being involved in it. And it has some of my greatest memories. Um, we were shooting, I was shooting a scene with Peter and, and Jenna. It was just the two of us. And um, it, I think it was the middle of week three. And it had been such a tough, again, such a tough shoot. Everyone was losing their temper. People were, various actors were like, no, not doing any more today. This is it. I'm finished. (laughs) Really? Yeah, occasionally, because it was just, because it was just so high pressure, because everybody had to be on all the time and everybody had to keep that level of focus about what we were doing where we were standing and remember your lines and all the other stuff
0: and you're inside a hot studio that doesn't have any natural air but i always find that to yeah. the thing when you're in all day and you've not no i'm this, it's not just television i'm the yeah. same in sort of a hotel if you're in a hotel all day mm-hmm. doing something if it's not natural light and it's yeah. not natural air all yeah. day
1: it it plays habit doesn't yeah it? it's not natural light it's it's red light as well all day um, it's lots and lots of Atmos being blown about, so lots and lots of dry ice, lots and lots of, of smoke machine getting into your lungs and making you feel like you've been smoking 20 cigarettes a day every day that you're in there, in a dark studio, um, on a, one of the hottest days of the year, on the hottest weeks of the year. Um, yeah, it's just, it's a pressure cooker. It just, it goes and causes people to get across. Um And we just spent so much time working on that and and, and doing that, and so exhausted from you know, spending every waking moment thinking about the show and doing the show and working on it. And I think it was like the middle of week three, and I'm shooting a scene with just those two. Everyone else had been taken, because it was from my point of view, and those were the only two people we could see in the shot. Everyone else had a ten-minute break. And we'd done this take about three or four times, and it was just, it was getting more and more frustrating. And then suddenly somebody walked through my line of sight, and I nearly did the full Christian (laughs) Bale. Who do you think, get out of my line of sight. And then realised that it was David Tennant, um, who'd walked through, and I went, oh, "Oh God!" and just like dropped the gun immediately, and went and turned around and saw my partner who was on a on a set visit, just with a big stupid grin on her face, just like really excited. And next to her was Russell T Davies, who had just turned up for the to to have a look at what was going on, and. Um, because they were in next door, because they were starting to do the pre-production for uh, *Midsummer Night's Dream* that came out uh, shortly of after. Course, that. Because yeah. David was originally supposed to direct that, and then personal reasons meant that he had to drop out, and um, and so they were there just doing all the all the planning for that. And I'm just like stood there looking around, going, "This is crazy. This is this is childhood dream stuff." Yeah. I'm I'm stood on a sta- I'm stood on a spaceship with a gun. <laughs> dressed as a mutant alien clone with with two doctors a companion and a showrunner this is this is this must be what it's like if you're a catholic meeting two popes and god you yeah know I mean? yeah <laughs> at the same time yeah. amazing and and so just and just everything shut down then and everyone was like well this is a welcome distraction from what's going on and so we stood watching and i just stood watching peter and david chatting to each other and they started talking about the 50th um, anniversary because it was because obviously you know they've both got this really strong connection because of the character but they never really worked together so it was they were chatting about that and talking about the 50th anniversary and how they'd had to go over how they'd had to film all the original Tardis sets over at the Doctor Who Experience which is where it is and how it was all falling apart and they couldn't really touch anything in case bits fell off and and Peter said yeah because we did that and I had to I was in my Tardis for for the bit with my eyes. So it was. So I was there for that, and he went. Oh. And he said, "Did you ever? Did you actually? Did you ever get to have a go on my Tardis?" And David went, "Oh no, I didn't. I didn't." He said, "Oh, would you like to come and have a look?" And he went, "Oh, I'd, I'd love to." And I was just like, "This is the greatest moment of my entire life." <laughs> and he said, "Oh, well, come along then." So Peter went and took me and Russell and Jenna and and Russell, uh, me, Peter, Jenna, Russell, and and David and Sana, my partner. And we walked round out of out of the spaceship, across the studio to where the big TARDIS set is. And he took us up the stairs outside to go to the main TARDIS entrance because that bit's right, so it's... Um, so he took us up the stairs and opened the door and went, welcome aboard. And I was just like, I've never been more excited about anything, as, as you can completely imagine. I've yeah. never been more excited about anything in my life. And I walked in and all of the light, the, the gaffers had gone, lit the entire place up. So it was all of the lights were on. Every moving part was moving. And it's like walking into the most beautiful cathedral that you've ever seen. And just couldn't catch my breath as I walked in. I was just awestruck by the beauty and the size and everything of it. Couldn't, just big deep breath, big sigh. And I'm never going to get another chance. So I had to step back outside and then back in and go, but it's bigger on the inside. And I was like, nailed that. I'm never going to get a chance to nail anything (laughs) as much as I did that and so we we then went and stood around on the console deck of the TARDIS just talking about it and talking about how things had changed and talking about Doctor Who and, and we just messed about and flew the TARDIS for a little bit that afternoon and and yeah and, and I remember cause I'd, it was about a month after I'd asked my girlfriend to marry me and she'd said no because um, she doesn't want to well, so, oh, my God, no, God, no. If I was, it would be you, but no, Jesus. I'm <laughs> not marrying anyone. I was like, well, you could have just said that little bit in the middle. First. <laughs> yeah, yeah just, if I would marry anyone, it'd be you. Not that, oh, my God, no. Um, and I just sort of turned to her and just went, I can't believe we're doing this. This is, like, the best moment of my life. And she went, yeah, you know. And she says, Just, you know, if if we did get married, and I did say yes, I was like, yeah. she went, it would never measure up to this, would it? <laughs> it would never measure up. It would be terrible. I was like... Yeah, it would be a letdown after this, <laughs> and so that was just beautiful. It was so much fun to do, and it was yeah. And I'm I'm really proud of that episode, and I really loved it. And and I know that it really split audiences. I know some people really really hated it, and I think some of it's down to the not being the the, the music at the start. Some of it's down to. Um, it being a found footage episode, which isn't to everyone's taste. Some of it's down to them trying to do something different with it. Some of it's down to the story. Some of it's down to the idea that the people don't really like the bogey monsters that are in it, the the eye bogey monsters, um, the Sandmen. Um, but do you know what? I think it's a really solid base-under-siege story.
0: Because it was so hard to shoot, were there any compromises that meant that what had been intended did not come out in the finished episode?
1: Um, Only that I don't... Of the stuff that I looked at in the original script, which I've still got at home, um, which I try to get signed by everybody, I think I've got most of them, um, I think the only thing that's missing from that is that the the guns didn't fire that we had. There was supposed to be lots of us shooting down corridors at at Sandmen as they were coming to us. But I think most of the rest of it worked. Most of the rest of it showed up. And it was you know it worked it was really I, I don't think there were that many compromises I think there was a couple of continuity errors that, that showed up there's a scene where we find the, the pods that everyone the, the sleep pods that people are in and um, the Morpheus pods and there's a scene where I suddenly disappear and reappear from the background <laughs> of, of a shot oh really? Uh, yeah yeah um, but other than that I don't really think there was that much that was compromised in terms of the making of it we they they budgeted for it to be to take twice as long, and it did, um, which was lovely because it did mean that I get that on my final week, I got to spend sitting in the lunch in my lunch hour rather than sitting on my own in my trailer. Uh, I got to sit outside with uh, a whole bunch of Time Lords who were showing up for the shooting of the finale of the season, ah. Um, including Tania Miller, who's in uh, yes. Years and Years, yeah. um, and so I sat. So I, I got to have a lovely couple of afternoons, sat with her, just chatting and, and with various other people. That was great. Um, I don't really think there were, there, there were that many sort of compromises that were made. It was, it was one of the most bizarre and surreal, like surreal's used far too often, but it is one of the most surreal experiences of my life. Um, absurd as well. I, um, it was the second week when they announced I was in it. We'd finished shooting for, for the week. Um, we, we'd we been told it would probably be day three of the first week and I wasn't allowed to tell anyone before that. And I mentioned that like, I'd not even told Russell about it and uh, one of the uh, one of the exec producers went, oh, you can tell Russell, tell Russell. So I quickly sent him an email, I sent him a text message saying, yeah, this thing that I've been telling you that I've not been allowed to tell you about I, uh, is Doctor Who and his, he was so over the moon about it, he said... <laughs> He said, honestly, I'm so jealous because I wish that I'd been able to cast you in Doctor Who when I was... I wish I'd have known that you were out there acting and I wish I'd have known because I would have found something for you in it because I think you would have been perfect. I think you and Doctor Who was a perfect match. And and it was really, really lovely about it. But then it was... We were told that, oh, it'll be the day when you do the first um, location shoot because somebody who works at the factory will, without a shadow of a doubt, get a photograph of one or two of you and then it'll be in the papers. So we were waiting for that and it didn't happen. And it was the week after. It was like the Wednesday of the week after we'd fin- finished shooting for the week. At like noon. I was in the car for two PM and just set off from Cardiff to come back to Manchester. And then at two fifteen my phone just started exploding because it had been announced online that I was in Doctor Who. And being the first trans um actor in openly trans actor in Doctor Who's history, suddenly my it just the news picked up on me. Everything. There were, like, something like 300 news articles done about wow. me in 24 hours. Wow. Um, my agents were furious on account of, because of the secrecy around it, I wasn't allowed to do any interviews with anybody about the episode. <laughs> I wasn't allowed to tell anybody about any of the contents of the episode. What it was about anything more than just the name of it. And so, I, you know, they were like, this could be a really good boost for you. But, um, yeah, it was... It was the, the most real thing of that was that... Um, I think it was Variety, went and put that as the headline for the day on their main website. And about twenty minutes later a really big Lady Gaga story came out and that didn't knock me off the front page. <laughs> <laughs> like for one day no, was, that Gaga. Yeah, I was bigger than Gaga. Lady Gaga. Um and so yeah, it was it was it yeah, it was it was really strange and, and for a couple of days after that, and it was literally just for a couple of days after that, just like people would stop me in the street and people would like going from my ho- when I went back to shoot in Cardiff, going from my hotel to the shopping centre, just became bizarre because just lots and lots of people wanting selfies and and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, overall, like, wouldn't change it for anything, and it's probably gonna remain one of the high points of my career, no matter what else I I get to go on and do. Um, well, they can't take that away from me, can they? <laughs> they can't. You
0: will always be in Doctor Who. You will always have been in Doctor Who. Um, well, before we talk about what you're going to go on and do, I want you to take that and you see, and I, and I <laughs> warned you this would be my gambit mm-hmm. was that, um, you know, you with um, trans is is a bit like me with Doctor Who in that we we, we were we were both we were both. It was a, both a massive part of both of our <laughs> lives before everybody. It was popular with everybody else. Yeah,
1: exactly. We we were doing this when uh, when people would still when you didn't tell anyone yeah, about
0: absolutely. it. Absolutely. When you are
1: trying to hide it from people. You know, God.
0: But I want to be careful with this because it is such, the, the issue of trans is such a political hot potato and yeah. such a social media hot potato. I I think what's this podcast's approach is I don't care about you as a as a force of politics i'm interested in you as as a person so so your journey your journey um which you took sort of again well before um it it was a journey that people took in the public eye yeah um so so
1: uh, i was i was uh, also one of the first people who was so completely open about that in what i was doing on stage and in what i was doing publicly like when i first transitioned um in it was, it was 20 years ago now. But um, I started, when I started performing, I remember talking to various different people in a in a trans support group that I was part of who kept saying, don't ever let anybody know. If you can get away with it, don't tell people because that's all they'll ever think of you. And you won't get any work and you won't do this and you won't do that. And I just, I can remember thinking, how can we ever progress things? You know, it's not really something to be ashamed of. It's part of who I am. I think of it more of as, as an admin issue than anything else. <laughs> It was it was an admin issue. Somebody made a terrible mistake based on incomplete data when I was when I was born, and 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 many years later I uh, corrected them of that m- mistake that they would made, and and got everything updated. Um, and so that's you know that's always how I saw it. But well, I've and I've talked I've always talked about it on stage. I don't when I say always talked about it on stage since I started. I have talked about it here and there whenever it's been relevant or wherever it's been something that I wanted to talk about. Mm. Um, but yeah, I've, and I've, you know, I've spoken out and sort of tried to help other people. Cause I always think that if you, if you're in a group that's, um, that has a tough time, if it's difficult for you, then I always feel like you've got a bit of an obligation to try and make it easier for everyone else who has to follow mm. rather than, rather than continue with uh, the way that things continue with the way that things work. Cause sometimes things do need to change and and so that's what I've always tried to do, and and so that was it. and and the first job that I did, the first acting job, Banana, was again I was the first trans character in a starring role, uh, the first trans actor playing a trans character in a starring role on British television, mm. um, and the first on on U.S. network television as well because it was on Logo uh, in the states. So it, the only times that there'd been trans characters, trans actors playing trans characters in roles before that were all streaming platforms so it's yeah it's it's you know it's and so so
0: but you talk about but prior to, you talk about being a, an admin error which is a yeah. very nice opening but when did you i mean when did you realize that you know when did you realize that the form had been filled in <laughs> incorrectly and how long did it take you to articulate that one to yourself yeah. and two to actually do anything about
1: it i realized when i, I must have realized when i was about three years old
0: Crikey.
1: Yeah. And I remember seeing an episode of The Love Boat, which had a character in it who was trans that week. Right. And it was one of Gopher's old college buddies who, who Gopher found incredibly attractive and thought it was the sister of his college buddy. Uh, and then, the, you know, the whole thing was revealed. And I watched that, and I can remember sitting there, and it was like something just clicked in my head and went, that makes quite a lot of sense. And... But I didn't have the words to articulate it and knew that things that were on television weren't necessarily real. And so just sort of carried on sort of with that in the back of my head. I knew better than to tell anybody. I already knew by that point that if I told anybody that would mean, that would possibly mean that uh, it would ruin my entire life and and make everyone who loved me hate me. Um, And I think it, it was always there sort of occasionally bubbling up at the back of my brain until I was about... Must have been about seven when there was something in a newspaper about someone who was trans, and then, um, and then a couple of years later, I saw the Rocky Horror Show for the first time, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and that was the closest thing I ever had to any representation. So I was suddenly, as like a nine a nine year old, I became obsessed with that and just watched it like three or four times a weekend, or well, three or four oh well, watched it every day and three or four times a weekend for the next sort of like six or seven years, because it was, a, it, even though like now I look at it and go, jeez, oh, And it makes me feel really awkward even thinking about that. But at the really? time that was, yeah, that was the closest thing I had to any sort of level of representation. To be fair, I watch
0: the Rocky Horror every day. when I discovered it for about a week, and uh, and and I haven't made the journey. So. No, no, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. But you know,
1: it does different things for different people. Because yeah. no, this is the thing. This is why I find it so strange that people go, "Well, you can't teach children in school about LGBT issues, otherwise they might want to be LGBT." It's like, how how terrible do you think being straight and cisgender is? that all it would take is knowing that there are other things that exist <laughs> to make you go, hang on a second, I've had enough of this. It's the whole ludicrousness of that yeah, argument, isn't it? it is. It is. It's, you know, it doesn't make sense. It, you know, it was there. It was something that I was struggling with for such a long time. And I think when I was a teenager, I kind of, um, I've been open about my struggles with drugs and alcohol as well. And I used that as a way of sort of trying to, just trying to not have to deal with the horror of what was going on inside my head. Because for me, growing up, I always, growing up in the 80s and 90s, especially under Section 28, knowing that any of this sort of stuff... Knowing that... I spent a lot of my childhood wishing I was just gay. Mm. And and it turns out I was, but not in the way that everyone else assumed. Well, that's
0: that's where I think it, it becomes very complicated, isn't it? Because you're a gay woman yeah. who is also transgender. Yeah. So that's that's going to confuse people on the outside, isn't it? Yeah, it
1: does. It does. And it's, you know, it's... Um, yeah, and and it was confusing. It was a it it took me a long time to sort of realize, realize who I was and 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 how that because gender and sexuality are entirely different things. It doesn't you know one thing isn't necessarily related to the other. And I think that's the other thing that a lot of people have a lot of difficulty in, in understanding. But I I knew from such a young age, and and also knew that I couldn't tell anybody because every single story that I ever saw, from the age of about seven onwards, like every every time it was mentioned on television, every time it was in a newspaper. I that was my source. That was my that was my one source of going. You are not alone. Mm. You are not the only person in the world who feels like this. And all of those stories in the newspapers and online and on, well, not even online at that point. But all those stories in newspapers and on television were always told as tragedies. They were always told as this poor person who has had to suffer with this thing and is a bit odd and is a bit weird and so unhappy with their life that they've had to do this and as a result of that they don't have any friends or family and nobody wants to be there you know, and all of this stuff that just made me go, right, well, that is the only that is the only path. So I've got to try and not tell that. And and I have various so other problems. So I was you know, I just drank and, and did drugs as a way of managing to get my head to shut up for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um and I think I was seventeen when I first sort of told my mum I mean, I came out to a couple of friends at high school. I mean, I was openly bi at high school uh, in the mid-90s, which uh, was uh, <laughs> which was probably a mistake. But, uh, <laughs> well, do you know what? I don't think it was. It was it's just it was one of those things that's like, you know, you see, you hear quite a lot about kids at school these days being open about their gender and identity and sexuality. Yeah. And people go, can you imagine if anyone did that back in the 1990s? And I'd think, well, I did. And it was horrible. And it was, you know, it, I got beaten up quite a lot. And I, you know, a lot of the things that happened to me as a teenager still affect me to this day. But, um, yeah, I was about 17. I, I, I told a couple of friends and none of them sort of, all of them were so embarrassed by the fact that I told them that no one ever said anything to anyone else. I don't think I had quite had the proper language to sort of explain what it was. And I sort of came out to my mum, Well, I came, got drunk and told my mum when I was like 17. And she was so upset that I then claimed that I was talking shit whilst I was drunk, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then went to go and see a psychiatrist. Uh, went to see my GP and and told her and got referred to see a psychiatrist who I went to see. Who then um, used the correct pronouns in his notes for the first time for me, and that was just wow. that was that was a moment when that happened that my just my heart lifted, and I was like, oh my god. This feels right for the first time in my life. It was the first time I felt right about myself in the way that anyone else was thinking about me or describing me or or doing any of these things. Um, and then about um, three months after that, I got a letter telling me that um, I'd been put on a waiting list to go and see somebody at a clinic about this and the waiting list was two years long. And I was like 17 and a half and it was going to be two years and I was just going off to university and I was in a relationship at that point and like, do you know what? Actually, no, I'm going to try and make this relationship work because this is what you're supposed to do. This is the life that the whole of the world wants you to have.
0: Yeah.
1: And that eventually just sort of fell apart. That's, you know, because it does. You're 17. It's not going to last forever. And we were together for about four years. And that broke down so badly when it did break down. And having put all of my stock into that being the thing that would, that would be the thing that would save me um i had a complete nervous breakdown and attempted suicide a number of times and um, and ended up going to see my my doctor at university my final year of university and i dropped out like in the february of the final year And i had gone to see gone to see my doctor and was thinking that i was going to have to try and convince her i was going to have to lie to her that I, and try and convince her that i was depressed when the fact that I would tried to commit suicide three times that week and was covered in in self harm scars was probably a fairly good indicator that that wasn't a lie, <laughs> and so I spoke to her and told her all of this, thinking, well, you know, I'll lay, tell her all of this, so, you know, but and I'll tell her a couple of other things to to maybe you know spice up the story a little bit, and she just immediately prescribed some antidepressants, and then within two days I had a Psychiatrist and a social worker turn up at my house. To, I thought, I was like, well, this is, this is really good service. This is what happens when a Labour government's in. The NHS, <laughs> the NHS works properly, and they send people around to your house to take care of you. And um, it was, yeah, it was halfway through that that I went, oh, shit, they're they're asking me questions because they're about to commit me, they're about to section me. And, um, and I can remember being sat in my lounge and looking at the floor and my head going, you have two choices here you can either go into a mental institution where you probably won't ever come out again or you can tell them exactly what's going on in your head and deal with that and it's that thing of, if you're stuck on the upper floor of a building and it's on fire you don't jump out the window immediately do you, you wait until the fear of the fall is less than the fear of the flames and that was the point that I'd reached and told them and they were great. Turns out that where I lived in London at the time was just around the corner from Charing Cross uh, Gender Identity Clinic. So I was a local patient, so I kind of jumped the queue there and was seen within eight weeks. Um, and and then just had to come out to my family, which is what I did. And and almost immediately life got better after that because I wasn't carrying around this big, horrible secret that I had to deal with. Um, and then over the next couple of years, did, you know, transitions, um, Socially, I had had surgery and suddenly for the first time my life felt okay in my own skin. For the first time ever. And life has just been so much better for that. But how do you
0: know, I mean anybody that's been through sort of mental health issues and addiction issues, both of which you've talked about.
1: Yeah.
0: How do you know that that, or how did you, and I know you said you'd seen the thing on the love boat and all that sort of thing. But how does it manifest... How do you think to yourself, oh, well, this is the way I, The reason I'm thinking this is because I'm in the
1: It's not even wrong that I'm body. in the wrong body. It's that thing that I'm, that I'm a woman and... Or, you know, was a girl and that no one else seemed to recognise that. And seeing that that was a thing that could be true was like, right, OK, that makes sense. So this is who I am. And it's not even that this is who I... This is how I feel, because, you, know, you know, that's... I feel like, a, like, you know, I don't, I, you know, I don't know. When people go, you know, also, what does being a woman feel like? It's like, well, I don't know. I just know what it feels like to be me. I don't yes. know what you yes. feel like. Yeah. I don't know what, I don't know how you relate to your gender. I don't know how you relate to your gender identity. I don't know how you relate to your body. But I, what I, the way that I felt, well, and it isn't even just, it's not even like, you know, oh, oh a set of stereotypes of, of what constitutes a woman. Like, it's not even that, you know, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a butch lesbian. <laughs> that's that's where I've landed. That's after all of this gone, okay, that's kind of where I'm at. That's who I am. And that's cool. That's how I express my gender and that's how I how I feel about things. But I, you know, I remember somebody, comedian, once going, oh, Don't you wish non binary had been a thing when you first came out? And I was like, Well, it was just because you hadn't heard of it, Um, (laughs) it was. And I'm not, I'm not non-binary, I'm very much binary. I'm a woman, I'm also a butch lesbian. Those things are not, those things are all things that people seem to group together as one thing, but they're not
0: Thanks for listening and thanks to Beth, whose charity is Mermaids, which is mermaidsuk.org.uk. Mermaidsuk.org.uk. And she will explain why in the second part of this interview, which will be the very next edition. Uh, please follow me on Twitter at Toby Haydoke. Since the last uh, series of Who's Round, I've also joined Instagram with, I have to say, mixed results because I don't really know how it works. However, I have put up pictures of me building a bin store and of a cute dog called Bird, who's my dog. Um, I'm not sure I'm using it to its full potential, but come join me there and we'll make magic. And until the next time, ta-ta, stay well, be nice.
1: Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who, The Eighth Doctor Adventures, Ravenous Four. I'm heading deep into the history of the Time Lords. It's different there, unruly. One of the few places I really shouldn't go. My, you chaps are in a right old pickle and no mistake. I'd like to outline my plan. Well, go
0: on. Are we gonna kill the Doctor or what? We speak to the Eleven. I'm the Eleven. These are my friends, the Ravenous, and you're... Well, lunch. (laughs) No, there's only one person you could be.
1: Well, well, the master. Oh, Doctor.
0: (laughs) I have missed this. All our conversations, the one-upmanship. It's been too long. It's good to be back. Now what? I've not sent you in to fetch a magical lamp. I sent you in so I can drop a roof on you.
1: What's he? Oh, no. Monica! Come oh, <laughs> You've got to start with these escape attempts, or this whole thing will take forever. Oh, I'm sorry. Here I was, thinking I was being held under duress. Let the feast commence. I can not
0: Big finish. We love stories. You think he'll
1: manage it? Mm, maybe. Popcorn?